0: My name is Nigel Bigger, and I'm the Regius Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology here in Oxford, the study of matters of right and wrong, but from a Christian religious point of view. It's ethics. We're speaking from my office in Christchurch, which is where I work and live. That's in the Southwest Lodgings in Christchurch, which is located in the very first part of the college that was built by Cardinal Wolsey in the late uh, 1520s. That, of course, was a turbulent period for. England and was part of the story that eventually led to Henry VIII's repudiation of the authority of the Roman Church. There is a certain parallel between that period during the reign of Henry VIII when the English King repudiated the authority of the Pope in Rome and our present situation when we voted in June 2016 to leave the European Union. My view is that there's no such thing as as absolute independence Individuals and, and nations are bound up with other individuals, other nations. We depend on other people and other nations. And we're always in the business of trying to calibrate the extent to which we compromise control of our own affairs for the sake of the benefits of association with others. There's no science to this. It's an art, and weighing up the benefits and the costs will vary from circumstance to circumstance. My own view of Brexit and I happen to vote Remain is that whereas if we had remained in the European Union, we would have remained on the outside of the inside, because if there had been a move toward a greater political integration, as is probably required if the Eurozone is to survive and thrive, the UK and other countries would not have been involved in that. We have chosen through the referendum in June 2016 to be in the outside, but we will still remain involved, uh, closely involved with Europe, because it's in our interest to do so, and so we will be on the inside of the outside rather than the outside of the inside. (laughs) The question of belonging to Union was, of course, on the table during the referendum about our membership of the EU, but it was also on the table two years before, during the referendum on Scottish independence. In both cases, the question was, well, what is independence? There are ways of being separate which give you less self-determination. Certainly, by leaving the EU, we will no longer be able to shape from within, the direction the EU goes in, and that's a loss of control. We will gain certain other forms of power. We will be able to gain control over our borders and over immigration. But there's a compromise there. We lose power and we gain power. But the issue of the benefits of union were raised very sharply for me during 2014, during the campaign for Scottish independence, because I'm an Anglo-Scot. I was born in Scotland. I was educated initially in Scotland and then at the age of 13 in the late 1960s came south to England. And I spent most of my life since then outside of Scotland, but I've always understood myself to be British. If you call me English, I will deny it. If you call me Scottish, I will deny it. I'm not. I'm British. I'm both. And I've rejoiced in that multiple identity. In the late stages of the referendum campaign, when it looked possible that the Scots might vote to become independent of the UK, and when it looked as if the 300-year-old union of England and Scotland might disintegrate. I, along with lots of others, I lost nights of sleep, anxious about that. What was very puzzling was, I felt these things very deeply, and so did many others. But the question was, why? Because so what if Nigel Bigger doesn't get to call himself British anymore? I mean, who cares? What's an identity worth? Would it be so bad if I just had to call myself English? What's lost by that? And I was very troubled as someone who was viscerally British by the inarticulacy of the pro-union campaign, of the Better Together campaign, which made the case for the retention of the union between England and Scotland almost entirely in economic terms, in terms of pounds and pence. One of its worst moments, the argument was that the Scots would be better off in the UK to the tune of about 500 quid. And I thought to myself, well, that may be true, but that's not why I believe in the UK. So after the referendum decision was made, after the Scots, in my view, rightly decided to remain part of the UK, I did some reflection about what is it that is so good about British identity? What is the United Kingdom good for? I do think it is a moral question. I am, by training so I I do tend to think in moral terms, and it's, perfectly true that not all identities are worth having. If I identified myself as a supporter of Islamic State, I imagine most people listening to me would be quite keen that I should disown Islamic State. So some identities are worth losing. And in order to answer the question, well, why is your identity worth keeping? I think you have to make a moral argument of some kind. So that leads to the question as to what the UK is good for. Why should we care whether it stands or falls, stays together or falls apart? I think one of the reasons it was so difficult for people like me to articulate what the UK is good for is that it's been so much part and parcel of the furniture of our lives that very few of us have actually stood back and, as it were, reflected on why. It's as if we were being asked to explain the ground on which we stand. Well, we can't see the ground on which we stand because we're standing on it. So in the months after the referendum, I did think and I wrote an article Trying to explain what I thought the UK was good for, I came up with three main things. The first is that the United Kingdom has been a remarkably successful multinational venture. For those of us who were born and brought up on the so called Celtic periphery of the UK, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, the multinational character of the UK is obvious. For those who have been brought up in the heartland of England, especially London. It's very easy to forget that. But the truth is we are a multinational state and we have multiple identities. And I think that's a remarkable strength. In spite of tensions and frictions between the Scots and the English and the Welsh and the English and the Irish and the Scots, the truth is we have enjoyed among ourselves a degree of international trust and confidence that the European Union still can only dream of. One practical expression of that is the fact that when taxes paid by wealthy Londoners and corporations in the city of London are used to subvent poorer parts of Northern England, let's say, or Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland, on the whole, Londoners don't complain. We understand we're one people and it's only fair that we should help each other. By contrast, when the German people are asked to bail out Greece, German taxpayers are adamant that they will not do that. There may come a time when wealthier members of the European Union are happy to subsidise and bail out poorer parts, but that's not where the European Union yet has arrived. And yet the UK got there a long time ago, and that sense of basic international trust and confidence and solidarity we enjoy here is not something that we should lose easily. Any political union involves attention, because to survive, a political union has to have a certain basic level of cohesion, and that means that the center has to be strong, and there has to be uh, agreement, so that all the different parts of this union can move as one. On the other hand, of course, different parts of a political union have different needs and different traditions, and they all want some control over their own way of life, And sometimes the periphery understands better what the periphery needs than the centre. Whether we're talking about the European Union or the United Kingdom or the United States, there's always this tension. So in the United Kingdom, we have different parts. And it seems to me one of the great achievements of the UK that we're not all the same. Scotland was never conquered. Scotland agreed to dissolve its parliament and send MPs to Westminster. But Scotland... Since the Act of Union in 1707, has retained its own legal system. It has an independent uh, church. It is not the Church of England, it's the Church of Scotland. It had its own education system. So, through compromise, through pragmatic compromise, Scotland has always remained relatively independent of England. It's not been the same. And that's been a good thing. We want difference in unity. We want many and one. But, different periods, there needs to be adjustment. It has seemed, certainly in recent decades, that the Scots want more autonomy, and to its credit, Westminster has granted Scotland increasing autonomy, particularly over tax and spending. So that's part of the constant renegotiation that has to go on if a union is to survive. But of course there will be friction, and that has to be negotiated. But it appears to be one of the strengths of the UK that we are able to resolve these things in a pragmatic fashion. People have observed a contrast between the way in which London has dealt with Scottish nationalist demands as against the way in which Madrid has recently tried to deal with Catalan demands. And that contrast has reflected very favourably on the UK. What I mean by that is partly that the London government agreed with the Scottish Nationalist administration in Edinburgh that they would hold a referendum They agreed what the question would be, and they agreed that if the vote was in favour of independence, London would grant that. Madrid, by contrast, has refused to concede at any point to Catalan nationalists. I think London was wiser about that. If people want to leave a union, even if the people have very bad reasons for leaving, you can't keep them in by force. Or if you try, the cost will be very high, and in the long term, you won't succeed. So, for example, in the early 1920s, when the Irish were struggling for independence from the UK, it would have been possible for the British government to have sent uh, even more troops to Ireland to suppress the rebellion by the Irish Republican Army. But the government realized that the British people would not have accepted the costs of that. Therefore, the government was willing to come to terms with Irish nationalists. When I say that the British people would not have accepted the costs of further military repression in Ireland, it wasn't the financial costs they were concerned about. It was the cost in terms of loss of life. And reports had come back to England from Ireland of certain bodies of paramilitary troops who had run amok and committed atrocities. And so even in England, the military repression of the Irish revolt was not popular and the government was wise to recognise that. Ireland got its independence, but note that the independence it got was a kind of blurred independence. Ireland got an independent government. On the other hand, Irish people were still permitted to uh, come to the UK. Irish citizens are still permitted to join the British Armed Forces. If you go to Ireland, as I did, I lived in Dublin for four years, you discover that you can vote in national elections. So, in that case, as in most cases, Independent, yes, but independence is always qualified and limited. That's one of the main goods, I think, that the UK sustains and makes it worthwhile. I mentioned that there were three things I thought the UK was good for. The second is military power. Why do I say that? After the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, and for about 10, 12, 15 years after that, it looked as if Europe would be at peace, and it really wasn't terribly clear what NATO was for. However, in the last 10 years, as we have watched Russia under President Putin becoming increasingly nationalist and aggressively nationalist, as we've watched Russian incursions into Ukraine in spite of the fact that Russia, along with the US and the UK, was a co-guarantor of Ukrainian independence according to the treaty in 1994, Russia invaded and remains an occupant of part of Ukraine. And Russia has been threatening the Baltic states and carrying out military exercises near the borders of Poland, military exercises that include the use of nuclear weapons. The Russian military exercises didn't involve the fire of nuclear weapons, but the exercise did assume that tactical nuclear weapons would be used against Poland. Given the behavior of Russia, it is now much clearer than it was 10 years ago. Europe needs to look to its defense. Hitherto, of course, we have depended on the United States, and I think we can still depend on them for a while to come, notwithstanding President Trump. Nevertheless, the Americans have for some long time become very irritated by the failure of Europe to shoulder a fair proportion of the burden of Europe's self-defense. Putting aside the United States, there are only two serious military powers in the West. One of them is the UK, the other is France. If the UK were to disintegrate, there is no doubt that Britain's military power would be significantly harmed. So if we care about the defense of Europe, then we ought to care about the integration of the United Kingdom. Now, of course, it would be crazy for President Putin to overstep the mark and cross a NATO border. He has crossed Ukraine's borders. He is rattling his saber. So. Just in case President Putin were tempted, for example, to start doing in Estonia or Lithuania what he did in Ukraine and start sending Russian troops in disguise across the border, which would be a very, very serious threat because the Baltic states are part of NATO and all NATO countries are treaty-bound to go to the defence of any member state who is threatened. And since a confrontation with a nuclear-armed Russia would be a very serious business indeed, we want to do all that we can to dissuade President Putin from taking that kind of risk. And the most important way in which we can dissuade him is by persuading him that we are serious about our defence. As far as European defence is concerned, Germany is not a serious military player. The Baltic states at the moment rely, I'm told, primarily on the UK after the United States. So not because Britain has any intention of launching an aggressive war against Russia, but simply because Britain needs to be in a position to offer a credible deterrent against any possible Russian aggression against a NATO border. We need to invest in our military, but most of all, we need to stay together. Because if Scotland became independent, it would complicate military affairs enormously and would be a major blow to our credibility and probably to our self-confidence as a nation. So the second reason why I think the UK is good for something is it is good for the defense of Europe. The third reason is related, and that is that we have a tradition here in the UK of taking responsibility for global order. We were involved in setting up the United Nations after the Second World War. We do retain a seat on the UN Security Council. We're one of the five permanent members, and we do have a serious responsibility. The United Nations doesn't have its own army. It only has military forces that nation-states give to it. And it's part of our responsibility as a permanent member of the Security Council that we should be able to provide military forces in defence of the international order and in defence of international law. That's a tradition I think we ought to retain and continue. Certainly, our recent experience in Iraq and Afghanistan has chastened us, and we need to think much harder about when and where we intervene abroad, but although we are chastened, there may still be important occasions when we should act. Arguably, if there were a repeat of the genocide in Rwanda, as took place in 1984, it may be appropriate for a country like the UK to intervene. And not many countries have the power to intervene in that way. Because of our imperial history, we do have a sense of being responsible not just for our own self-defence, but also for the maintenance of law and order throughout the world. Of course, we can't do that by ourselves now. We do depend on other countries to help us, but we should play our part. Part of the narrative that Scottish nationalists who want independence from the UK is this, that Britain equals empire equals evil. And because... Britain equals evil, therefore Scotland's leaving the British Union is an act of repentance and self-purification. If that reading of Britain's history were true, then perhaps the Scottish Nationalists would have a point. But I happen to know that that reading of Britain's history is simply untrue. Yes, indeed, during our role as an imperial power, bad things were done. Slavery being one of those shameful periods of imperial history. But the British Empire was different things at different times and different places. Sometimes it was primarily motivated by humanitarian impulses. Just like any nation-state that's been around for a long time, good things and bad things were done in its name. And I'm not arguing for a repeat of it. My view is that it was morally ambiguous and that to describe it as being sheerly evil is a travesty. It wasn't. I accept that any nation-state and any political community is likely to be a mixture of good and bad, particularly if it survives over a long period of time and involves millions of different uh, human agents. It's bound to be a moral mixture. I just think we need to come to a moderated understanding of our imperial past, and there are parts to be ashamed of and parts to be proud of. The pride doesn't remove the shame nor the shame the pride. We need to feel both and seek to build on the good things we did and to disown and perhaps make reparation for the bad things. So as I reflected on the reasons why I'm attached to the UK and think it is worth preserving. Those three things I thought the UK is good for. First of all, multinational, international trust among the various nations of the UK is something to be preserved and cherished. The defence of Europe and then the maintenance of a role in supporting international law and order. I don't believe that any political entity or political union has a right to exist forever. Nations and empires, they come and they go. The United Kingdom didn't exist before 1707. The United States very nearly fell apart in the 1860s, and Czechoslovakia did dissolve in the 1990s. So there can be good reasons for a political union to dissolve, and were it the case that, for example, the Scots had been severely oppressed or their interests had been systematically neglected then there could be a good reason why Scotland should become independent of the UK. It's my view that the Scots haven't suffered the kind of injustices or neglect that would justify disintegration. Since any divorce usually involves friction and resentment, it's best avoided if you possibly can. As for Brexit... Again, there could be good reasons for coming out of the European Union if there was a serious infringement of national autonomy, if the centre proved unable to adjust to legitimate calls for greater national autonomy. I myself, I did vote Remain, but I'm not a a true believer in a European federal state. It seemed to me that within the European Union there are lots of problems. I calculated on balance it would be wiser to Remain in, but... I can also see some reasons for coming out. Since we're coming out, it's clear that we will lose a certain amount of control, certainly control over the way in which the EU develops. We'll be less able to shape it in the direction we want. So we lose power in the sense we lose independence. We become more dependent on decisions other people make. On the plus side, it does seem to me that the rate of net immigration into this country and the scale of it over the last decade has been unprecedented. We don't know what problems for social cohesion we're storing up for the future. There is the argument that British employers have not had the incentive to invest in improving productivity because they have had cheap labour from Eastern and Southern Europe available. And so I can see there's an argument for recovering national control over borders. Whether that will have been worth it, we just don't know. I'm not an economist, but I do read lots of newspapers, and my sense is no one really knows what the effects will be. Probably we'll be slightly worse off economically in the short term. Whether we can compensate for that in other ways in the longer term is yet to be seen. So my own view is that, although I voted to remain, coming out need not be a disaster, and certainly the UK will have to forge a new set of relationships with the EU because we have all sorts of common interests and we need to cooperate. It's just going to be a different kind of cooperation. So I don't see the apocalypse coming down our way. We're going to have certain challenges and certainly we'll probably be preoccupied with this for the next five to ten years. But we're just going to have to make the best of it.